Hello, Gritman. Gritman here, and welcome to the Gritman Show. Pretty pumped about this episode, and I love all of our episodes. They're kind of like your children. You love them for different reasons, and but this one's about my child, an experience I was able to have with him when he shot his first deer this past January. We'll get to that, but I want to make a show announcement and tell you about an idea that I had. I consume lots of different media, podcast, radio, TV, print, which means I'm also exposed to a lot of advertising. And I'd say my favorite's probably print, a tasteful ad, and our guest later is going to talk about that. But as a whole, I believe we're inundated with a bunch of crap. Let me explain. Every driver is going to give you an extra 10 yards off the tee. And every hamburger is the best tasting hamburger ever. Or maybe you got a host that's reading a script and he's acting like he really likes the product or a celebrity endorsement that comes on. And But we really know they're just saying that because they're getting paid. And So I thought, man, there's got to be a better way. And advertising is common on these podcasts. And there's a function that I can turn on at any time and it'll start dropping ads in. And it'll pay me a few dollars, but... I didn't want to do that because I don't want to lose control. And I didn't want somebody advertising on my show that I don't know or believe in. So I thought, why not just partner with some brands that you already are using and you know and you trust. And so that's what I've come up with. It's going to be called maybe our brand partners or Gritman endorsed products or trusted partners. And I don't like a lot of rules, but here's kind of the framework I've established that I have to have bought the product with my own money and are currently using it. So it's no one's given me anything. Nobody's bribed me. The second is I have to met the owners and I have to make sure they stand behind their product. And if there's a problem, then I can get them on the phone and correct it for one of you. And third, it just has to be a product that Gritman can use and enjoy and has to exhibit the Gritman characteristics of quality and class and toughness. So. That's the framework, and if all goes well, these brand partners will benefit from being endorsed by our show, and they'll in turn contribute to the advancement of grit and help us grow our show. And so it'll be grit men helping grit men, and just how things should be, I think. The first one I want to tell you about is called Turtle Box Audio. Four owners, I've met three, so not going to lie, I've not met all four, but after meeting the three, I'd be very surprised that the fourth one's a turd. And these four guys lived together at one point, and they like to hunt, they like to fish, like to barbecue in the backyard, and what goes well with those activities? Good music. 
And while there was lots of Bluetooth speakers available on the market, what they found was there wasn't one that was tough enough to be able to throw on the back of their Polaris or Can-Am or on the back of a tailgate or take it to the beach or the boat or by the pool. Let's just call it what it is. There wasn't a gritty speaker on the market. So what do grit men do when something doesn't exist? That's right, they create it. They have come up with a waterproof speaker that's battery lasts a long time. Take it anywhere. Um, it's a gritty speaker. Turtle Box Audio. Go check it out. Got lots of colors to choose from. Put in code GRIT, and they're going to give you a little discount for being a grit man. Turtle Box Audio. All right, let's get to the show. I told you I got to tag along when my son was able to shoot his first deer. and We got a call on a late Tuesday night from a cousin of ours and said, Hey, got this eight point that's mature, that's chasing some does, and it, uh, it needs to be shot. Would Coy like to shoot it? And I wanted to quickly respond, Hell yeah, he would, but thought about it. And I said, Well, let me talk to him and let me talk to my wife and his mom. And Coy said that he would, sure, Dad, I'd like to do it. And I was, I was pumped. Uh, but my reluctance was because that Coy's got some, some challenges. And he was born real premature. And some of you know him, but sweet kid. And I didn't know if his physical limitations were going to prevent him from holding the rifle or being able to look through the scope. And he had some eye surgery, so... I didn't want something that could be a positive to turn into a source of frustration. And I share this with you, not to feel sorry for him or for me, but to just have some perspective on uh, the story I'm telling. Uh, I believe there's something really special for Koi out there in the future, and I plan to help him find it or create it. But So anyway, we, we accepted the invitation, and we go down to Freer, Texas, and it was... It was just awesome, a, a memory that I'll have forever. I was so proud of him, and he was successful shooting the deer. And I didn't know how he was going to do if he, when he got over it and saw that he'd, you know, taken the life, been able to kill it because he's he's so tender-hearted. But it just went better than I could have imagined, and all my scenarios of things that go wrong just didn't play out. And so it's great. So I sat down with Coy and asked him about the experience, and this is what he had to say. So, Coy, can you tell us some of your memories of shooting your first deer? It was great because I was the one who shot it with a scope. And afterwards, I took pictures with it Yeah. and cut off its balls <laughs> and laid it. And then me and you uh, took it to get mounted and... and it meat turned into other kind of meat. What sausage and burger meat, which burger. you should eat. Yeah, we need to make some burgers. Mm-hmm. So, was it hard shooting the deer? Um, um, it um was because I kept missing. Yeah. And eventually, I hit it. Right, you didn't give up. Mm-hmm. And. After you shot the deer, then there were some traditions I told you about, like putting blood on your face. Do you remember that? Yeah. And what else? Having a sip of bourbon. Yeah? 
It tasted like gasoline. It tasted like gasoline. Yeah. And did you feel bad for shooting the deer? No, because God made animals for us to eat. Yeah, he made, God created the animals and it's our responsibility to harvest them responsibly. And then what did, what did we do with the, after we shot it, where did we take the deer? We took it to get mounted and yeah. get turned into sausage and burger meat. Yeah, we've ate some of the sausage, right? Yes. That's good. Well, I just, that's a memory I'll never forget. And I just that's thank you for letting me spend that time with you. You're welcome. Do you think other people that haven't deer hunted should try it out? Yeah. Yeah, did you feel closer to me and Grandpa after yes. that? Yes. It's awesome, man. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, that's some good stuff, and I think that's what it's all about. Getting outdoors, spending time with people you love, and just creating those lasting memories. Coy's a pretty funny kid, and he's very direct. And I told him one of the rules was that what happens at deer camp stays at deer camp. So when we got home, his mom was there to greet us at the door, and his mom is my wife. I think I maybe worded that incorrectly earlier. But she says, hey, bud, how was it? And he says, it was great, and that's all I can tell you. This experience was just a big win for Coy, and it was eye-opening for me because maybe I've been looking for those wins in the wrong places. And, you know, as a parent, you want to see your child be successful and Getting a victory, even if it's a small one, I think is important for their confidence and overall well-being. And losses are important, too, because that can teach some life lessons. But you need to mix in a win. And this was way more than just shooting an animal for Koi. And I, well, first of all, we got to spend lots of time together. Eight hours in the car, four there, four back, and then the, the memories. But... This gave Coy a sense of accomplishment and a, a feeling that he belonged and he could relate to me better and his grandpa and he got to go to school and tell his buds about his hunting trip and shooting a nine-point buck. and So that was great. And um, But the second part, on the way home, he asked me a question and sometimes your kids can get you with questions because then you got to answer them and you... You wonder how to answer them and how much do I tell. And But I prepared him for possibly shooting the deer on the way down and talking about conservation a lot. So on the way home, he looks at me and says, Hey, Dad, how is killing conservation? And I paused because I was trying to think of a thoughtful answer and I stumbled through something about God putting animals on the earth for us to eat. And But it wasn't a very good answer. And what I realized is I didn't have the answer. And so I went down a path to start doing some research. And I was curious myself. And that path led me to our guest today, Tyler Sharp, who is the CEO and editor of Modern Huntsman. And I was turned on to his publication because he talks about the role of a hunter in today's world. And what's it mean to to be a hunter and what's the responsibility you have and so that question that Coy asked me was simple but it's a very complicated answer and it involves lots of parties lots of opinions and so we explore that on this conversation I learned a lot you know we talk about the, the economic side and the job creation 
and the source of the funding and the mechanism, and then we get into the conservation and protecting our wild places and, and having healthy populations of our game animals. And and we get into the tradition and the, the code of ethics, and we talk about those that maybe weren't raised in a traditional hunting family and you know why do you need to hunt when there's plenty of protein at the grocery store. So I hope you like it. Uh, check out Modern Huntsman. It's very tasteful. Tyler does a wonderful job. Um, and, and in true grit men show fashion, we mix in a little grit in this interview too when we get to the end. So do me a favor, check out Modern Huntsman. Go check out Turtle Box. And I'm going to, I got a new partner for you. I'm going to introduce you in just a little bit. So thank you for listening. Get out and find your grit. Guys, he's a lot like Nails. He plays like Nails. He's tough as Nails. He likes to call himself Grit Man, whatever that means. Quit hunting with my daddy. Guess I didn't make the time. And it's been a year since I've seen a deer at a small mouth on the line. The other day I hooked a monster. As I reeled him in, I thought, man, it feels good to be country again. Tyler, thank you for coming on the Gritman Show. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Or thanks for coming all the way up to Dallas. Well, I, I prefer to do these in person. And thank you for responding to my somewhat sketchy direct <laughs> message on Instagram. <laughs> no, it's all good. That's what those are for. Well, I'm, I'm new to this world. I mean, you've been in it. And so I've, uh, I've gone from having some success to begging people to talk to me so it's a new world so thank you yeah glad to be here well i've been excited about this episode because it's an experience i shared with my son that uh, him asking me a question that i didn't know how to answer and it made me do some searching and my research pointed me to you and the project that you've created and i think you're uniquely qualified to help me answer this question sure thank you um We'll get to that question my son asked me, but we'll establish a little credibility with my listeners. I researched your story, uh, but they may not know who you are. So sure. can you, I think you have a lot of job titles. Why don't you tell us a little bit yeah. about you? Uh, well, my name's Tyler Sharp, and I am i don't know what I'd call myself anymore. I was a filmmaker, photographer, writer for years, did some creative direction and things like that, and then kind of launched Modern Huntsman and as you said, have a couple titles, founder, CEO, editor-in-chief, marketing director. I have started recently to just say head idiot um, <laughs> and basically spent my career in the hunting industry working for publications and brands in the outdoor space. And, and just through that entire experience kind of made two major observations that one, a lot of hunters and hunting organizations and brands, in my opinion, didn't weren't doing an effective job of communicating hunting's role in conservation to people who don't hunt or really just being, you know, communicators of the merits of that. And then the other side of that is having gone to film school in California, having a lot of friends in urban areas, they really, a lot of people don't have a, an understanding either of how hunting works uh, or contributes to conservation or have a misinformed view from what they've seen on social media or news headlines or, or things like that. And so ultimately an underlying theme in my work has been trying to bridge those communication gaps, which ultimately led to the creation of Honor Huntsman, which is pretty much our, our sole mission there. So gotcha. it seems like modern Huntsman is kind of a, 
a product of a lot of different experiences you had. Mm-hmm. So after you went to USC, mm-hmm. but you went to Africa, is yeah. that correct? Yes. So I yeah, graduated college in 2006, and maybe two months before, just through fate really, got an opportunity to go work for a safari company that operated. They did fishing, hunting, Kilimanjaro safaris, all kinds of stuff. And they needed somebody to basically come and film these and create promotional DVDs and all that. And I remember my mother, my small, my mother's from a small town in Texas. And she called me, you know, about a month before graduation. She was like, Tyler, do you have a job yet? Do you know what you're going to do when you graduate? And I said, well, mom, actually I got a job in Africa. And there was this sort of long pause. And then she goes, does it have benefits? <laughs> I said, well, the benefits going to Africa. And she was like, well, what if you get mauled by a lion? And I, you know, I said, I guess it's my time to go then. So, um, you know, graduated college, moved to Tanzania, had an incredibly life-changing experience, got thrown into the middle of the bush, um, filming all kinds of crazy stuff and, and got charged by elephants and lions came into my tent and all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, and, and that sort of just put me on the path. I, I, came back, learned about Dallas Safari Club, and obviously was just finding a way to get back over there. That sort of evolved into filming for TV shows on the Outdoor Channel. Um, I filmed for a couple of Jim Shockey's shows. And in three years, I went to 35 countries all over the world. Um, and through that experience, kind of saw the best and the worst of the hunting industry and hunters themselves, right? Some people are true, dedicated conservationists. Other people just want to kill stuff and and not necessarily saying one or the other is better well maybe i am actually Mm -hmm. um but i think that what's important is that in most cases there are conservation systems and tools in place that even if somebody isn't necessarily living up to maybe an ethical code that we Mm -hmm. both subscribe to at least the money they're paying is going uh, to the right place Um, and so apart from that, working for brands, working for other publications kind of took my negative experiences and tried to figure out a way, how can, how can we do it better? I mean, there was a lot of magazines I worked for where I would go bust my ass and, and spend six days shooting a story and shoot thousands of images. And, and then the story would come out and they'd publish three photos and you had to turn the book sideways and get out a magnifying glass to find photo credit. Hmm. And, and so a lot of those things trying to give a little more visibility to the creative, uh, finding a better way to work with brands on their story and that sort of thing. In addition to improving the communication around all of that, that that's sort of all of that coming together. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you weren't always hunting with a rifle or a shotgun. You, you were using the camera or a, absolutely. I was videoing the human shield. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, good. We'll, we'll get back to some of those experiences, but you mentioned the word conservation mm-hmm. and ethics, and that's that's the question my son asked me that kind of hit me square between the eyes, and, and I didn't have a good answer. So mm-hmm. I think I, I told you the story about how he shot his first deer this January, and he's not a hunter. I took him at two years old duck hunting before I knew he had some, some challenges, and I ruined him. And probably looking back, that was not the greatest first hunt, taking him in leaving him on a little island while I put out the decoys <laughs> and he got muddy, which the things he didn't like and cold and wet. And mm-hmm. So it took a while for him to want to go back to me. Now he, I think he said yes, because he can tell when I want to hang out with him and spend time. Sure. And he did great. 
but I tried to explain to them the circle of life and we're going to eat what we kill and, uh, and that hunters are conservationists. And on the way home, he goes, dad, how is killing conservation? And I'm like, Ooh, how do I answer this? <laughs> and, and it was a great question. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, led me down a pathway of a lot of research and, and reading books and articles. And it's a fair question. And yeah. so I want you to help me answer that. Well, that's a, a complex, multi-pronged answer. Well, a very practical answer to that is, at least in North America, right? We obviously have the North American model of conservation. And a legislative answer to that is the Pittman-Robertson Act, right? Yep. Which I'm sure you're familiar with. And I'm not sure if you've shared that information with your son. Well, yeah. our, our, part of my research, I read this book called The Fair Chase. And, sure. and it, it detailed that. Yep. And so that was my first thought. But again... Some, I can't give him long-winded answers, right. and I didn't have a short one. <laughs> right. So uh, a little more context. So my main advisor through the whole con- you know, concepting of Modern Huntsman and then through mm-hmm. the execution and then through over the years has been Simon Roosevelt, who is okay. the great-great-grandson of, of Theodore Roosevelt. Yep. And so obviously is involved in the yep. creation of the fair chase principle and, and all of those sorts of things. And so that's always been something that he's kind of uh, kept at our forefront to make sure that we're still maintaining those sorts of ethics. But I think that in terms of killing to conserve, at this point, we as humans have screwed up the natural order of things with Mm -hmm. our planned developments and highways and all this sorts of thing. And that's created an imbalance in certain wildlife populations and ecosystems that in most cases has to be managed now. And in, in, in certain cases in the same way, I don't know, maybe you could use, maybe you could use gardening as an example, right? If, if you have vegetables or a rose bush or something at a certain point, you have to prune yeah. a few to, to keep the, the plant and let's, let's consider the plant, the herd healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so through selective management of those things, you're improving the health of the overall species. And and so I, if, if you were going to give them a short answer, you know, there's something we've learned through a lot of ha- biologists and, and wildlife management um, folks is just that you can't think about the individual. You have to think about the species. And what I love about having a business partner like Byron from Scotland is I've learned a lot about how things work in other parts of the world, obviously some through my travels, but with Byron in particular in Scotland, the way they manage the stag herds and the red deer herds, if you go over there to hunt, you're not choosing which stag you get to shoot. Okay. They have the rifle on their back. They are taking you out. Uh, it is your privilege to be there. And essentially they are selecting the stag that's the oldest, the weakest, or just needs to go. They're Mm -hmm. trying to thin the herd. And so you're not going to go out there and shoot the biggest one you see. Okay. If it just so happens that the biggest one has a broken leg and you got really lucky, you might get to shoot that one. But for the most part, they're taking animals and selecting that take from a a management perspective. Mm -hmm. And so that's a practical way of doing it. Um, obviously combined with the no, sort of that, that's perfect. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you why, because the deer that my son shot, uh, a cousin of ours has a place down in Freer, Texas and mm-hmm. lots of deer. Right. So 
managing the herd, but this was a cold buck. And mm-hmm. he said, hey, this it's in the rut, and there's a mature eight point sure. that needs to go. I don't didn't want him yeah. breeding the does. Um, and so it was... It lived a good life, mm-hmm. and it became it was a trophy to my son. Yeah, yep. and I think another, <clears throat> and this is going to get nuanced, but I think that another aspect of that is what they call ecosystem or um, ecosystem level yep. conservation, right? Where you're looking at an entire ecosystem, even beyond just managing one species. And I, I'm not the the right person to spell out the exact trickle down of what happens if there's too many deer Mm -hmm. right but in certain environments you know with with too many ungulates in an area they overgraze it the the grass and the you know roots and and um shrubs along the the river goes away then the fish lose the habitat and you lose the hatch grounds and i mean there's there's all sorts of ripple effects for that and so i think that as long as it's part of a sound management, um, you know, philosophy, then it, you know, it, it can go a long way. But I think that there's a lot of people who probably just say that word, yeah. uh, without really understanding what they're doing. And so I think it's just important to, to understand what those impacts are and that it's actually ideally measured in some way, mm-hmm. um, and reassessed. And I think that where it gets tricky is, some things that are considered traditions because they've been done for so long, maybe sometimes uh, we've gotten to a point where some traditions probably shouldn't survive, maybe because it's against what management principles should say or how many you should be shooting or how many fish you'd be catching or whatever. Those are, those are things that need to be adapted as, you know, the human population continues to expand and we continue to lose you know, unfenced wild places and, and things like that. So no, that's good. And it, this done a deep dive to look into them I and it's not much different than like the cattle industry or poultry or, um, raising pigs. I mean, you're not going to harvest your whole herd, No, but there's certain amount each year, the offspring that you sell, you keep some, but you're managing the population mm-hmm. and it done right. I mean, deer hunting can do that and bird hunting. I guess the problem comes in when it always gets me when they set these limits each year. Well, how do you know that's the right amount? Sure. Yeah. And, and another term that we've been, you know, Byron and I are constantly trying to redefine our purpose and mission statement and, and what we are focused on and things like that. And ultimately now with Modern Huntsman, we're all, not even really saying we're focused on communicating between hunters and non-hunters we're actually focused on responsible use of natural resources Mm -hmm. and wildlife is part of that but there's a lot of other things uh that can be considered conservation that have nothing to do with hunting that directly affect the ability to hunt and you know the the species and the populations and the wild spaces so water Mm -hmm. native plants Mm -hmm. yeah so you mentioned Pittman Roberts, and for those that don't know, look it up, but it's uh, it was a bill, I don't know if it was two senators or two congressmen that authored it and got their last name on it, but it, that created the pathway for revenue off of firearms and uh, equipment, duck stamps, hunting licenses, mm-hmm. and I think it's a big deal uh, because it's 95%, 98% of, I've read of funds 
that go to conservation are from hunters. Yeah, it's a hard number to pin down because right. of different classifications. But yes, a vast majority globally comes from that. And in, in North America, specifically with Pittman-Robertson, um, you know, it's it's millions of dollars every year um, generated through that excise test. And I can't, I'm a little fuzzy if it's 11% or 12% tax, but it's significant. Right. Um, and, you know, they've considered what they call a backpack tax, right? Should they be taxing people who are hiking and things like that as a way to contribute to that? But then, you know, of course, the other side of the coin there is, well, if now there's a backpack tax and non-consumptive users are contributing to the conservation pool, do does the hunting industry and those groups lose their ability to say that we do the majority of it? And by, by you know, effect do they lose any sort of sway kind right. of thing so it's you know an ongoing debate well yeah and the there's the the groups probably that are anti-hunting they're not really contributing any dollars to protecting the public lands or the parks it, Maybe. it depends some yeah. some are but yeah I, I would say that as a whole yeah m- a lot of it's more focused on anti-camp you know pr campaigns and and things like that it's uh that would be something that we've been discussing a lot is how do we get how do we create more collaborative uh you know fundraising and conservation across the aisle like that um but we've found that a lot of not necessarily non-hunting organizations but a lot of for sure anti-hunting organizations uh, just don't even want to have a conversation about it they just they'd rather not have mm-hmm. any engagement with somebody associated with hunting. And we've, we've found that to be the case with interviews and professors and conservation groups, um, who just don't want the potential PR, uh, whatever you want to call it, blight to be associated with anybody who says they're hunters. Yeah. Well, let's dig into that. The ethics or mm. ethical way to hunt. And I remember taking hunter safety course and they, guy teaching it was have some uh, common sense when don't you know put you shoot a deer don't put it on the roof or hang the horns out the back and don't you know broadcast bloody pictures but that seems to be a a theme that y'all are promoting yeah i mean i think that it's just one of those things where we live in a world where an image you share or a video you post or a comment you make can travel global media channels Mm -hmm. in a matter of seconds and that reality has caused a lot of problems and in some cases has led to actual loss of hunting opportunities in countries many countries in the world right restrictions or closures or import bans or you know archery is not allowed in a lot of europe and that isn't necessarily an anti-hunting thing but just there are consequences to certain people's actions. And I remember in particular, I'm not going to use names or anything like that, but there was a, a situation a couple of years ago where some American hunters went over and shot some, I guess they're considered feral goats in Scotland and posted some, I'm going to, I want to say distasteful photos online uh, and the backlash actually from the anti-hunting organization led to some legislation that um 
restrict further restricted what is already a fairly um, regimented and you know hunting opportunities in in the UK and so I think that it's just a matter of taking personal responsibility that bad things can happen if, if you're not aware and respectful of of how those things can be negatively used and a lot of people say oh well I should be able to I should be able to say what I want or I should be able to share these photos yeah I mean yeah but you can't always do what you want to do. And it was different in the nineties when there wasn't social media. Now there is. And it's just, if you want this to be an ongoing tradition that multiple, multiple generations from now can enjoy, you may need to consider how have, your actions might affect that. Yeah. yeah. And it's, that's a complicated thing mm-hmm. because you can't live your life worried about what others think all the time, but you also, I don't think it does any good to just, create drama sure <laughs> where yeah. it's not needed yeah yeah uh, let's talk about africa uh because you spent some time there and and that's i've never been and i've had friends and clients go and shoot a lot of animals and i don't know what to think about it and mm. i, I want to explore that a little bit but in in my research on some podcasts you've done i think you had a i wrote down some notes some and what popped in my head was what gets rewarded gets repeated but i think that was a the guy from uh, Southwest Airlines used to say that in business. Mm-hmm. But you had a parallel if it's on how, if it's valued, it will exist. I forget how you worded yeah. that. So to to distill it, basically, you know, there's, Africa's facing, and, and we just, our last issue was all about Africa. And we dove into a lot of these topics but massive population explosion and, and, and expansion and deforestation and um, cattle is, a, is, a, is an issue, right? Mm-hmm. There are uh, ever-increasing amount of Africans who are just trying to make a living, right? Grow their crops, heart, you know, farm their cattle, not farm their cattle, whatever you want to call it, tend to their livestock. Mm-hmm. And increasingly well increasingly diminishing right ever diminishing places for them to do that and wild places and so essentially if a resource doesn't have a value and a um like a a recognizable intangible benefit to the community it won't survive yeah right so if there's a a game reserve a wild area uh that where hunting is operated um, it's crucial that whoever is responsible for caretaking that area is not only engaging with the community to protect it and put in anti-poaching places and prevent trees from being cutting down and honey poached and, and all sorts of things. Um, tree poaching is a major problem that's not often discussed. People just cutting trees down for hardwoods and mm-hmm. milling that into lumber and selling it, right? right? It's, that's a way someone's trying to make a living, but if it's not regulated and you, you know, multiply that over uh, massive populations, it, it, wild areas can disappear very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so basically it becomes a land use uh, equation where some areas that are really remote more rugged if there's tsetse flies and it's not necessarily pretty photographic tourists don't want to go there right oftentimes hunters are the only ones who want to go and visit these places and you know have a rough time uh and if 
vice versa, places like the Serengeti or Victoria Falls, there's these beautiful places that are very photographic and there's infrastructure in place. You know, photographic safaris are a lot more popular and sometimes hunting's often allowed there too. But if if there's no benefit to the local communities, a lot of these are sort of um, mandated by tribal council or village uh you know sort of boards and they get to vote on how do we want to use this land and so in that case um everything is a natural resource including these animals that so many people in the west have fallen in love with even though they've never actually seen them in person and they definitely haven't lived with them in their backyard and had their kids get stalked by a lion on their way to school or mm-hmm. have their cattle eaten by hyenas or you know whatever it is uh a lot of people here wouldn't tolerate that it's like you hear stories about a black bear getting to somebody's trash and like shoot it kill it we don't want it here I'm like okay well think about an elephant right. wrecking your house and you know if you only make two thousand dollars a year it's hard to come back from that mm-hmm. so ultimately it's there's got to be and it's a very complex solution but you you got to have a way for ideally the community to be involved in that. A lot of times these hunting operations are hiring people from that village or community to be trackers or skinners or cooks or any other of the number of jobs, mechanics, uh, game scouts, all kinds of things. And then typically they're receiving um, 20 to 30% of the, the revenue generated from these operations go back to the village and a lot of times it's voted on by a council hey how do we want to use this do we want to build a school do we want to build a well do we need a corn mill to ground corn so we don't have to do it in a bowl anymore um do we need uh, rice do we need goats whatever it is um and the most successful examples are where they've figured that out and Mm -hmm. the community has they very easily can make the correlation between these guys come hunt it brings in money this is how our life is improved. Right. And if that is not there, uh, then they don't really have any reason to deal with the inconvenience of lion eating their cat, their, their cattle kind of thing. Got it. So let me break this down. So because people are willing to go over to Africa and pay large sums of money to shoot African game, it creates an economy and a trickle down effect and those animals have value. So the locals are willing to work to save them from the tourists or the visitors coming in is that what you're saying uh, more or less or nope. so if there was no if there was no photographic and there was no uh hunting operations in africa if those mm-hmm. two things were not a thing it's unlikely that there would be much game left because to the way of life over there, there would be no revenue it's yeah. it's survival right yeah. they would that's that's a they that's do something meat, else yeah right or they'd say well we don't we would drive if if you're in a remote area and you have a herd of cattle and the leopard is eating your cattle, well, they'll put out a poisoned carcass and they'll kill three or four leopards in, in one day with mm-hmm. that. It doesn't take long to wipe out a leopard population. And so by just survival and, and you know getting on with your life and preventing the loss of your livelihood and your family, there's really no reason to have them there. And so there's an element of... Um, of tolerance, right? Mm-hmm. What are we willing to put up with living in, you know, close connection with these wild animals? And that answer is different for different communities. It's not the same, but maybe so like in South Texas or Texas, we've got rattlesnakes. 
I guess if people from Africa were coming over here and it was a prized possession, they'd pay us a lot of money. Probably wouldn't be killing those snakes. Right. Yeah. It, it's a resource that you'd want to manage and protect. Value. And, um, you know, and, and in certain cases, uh, let's use the rattlesnake example as a way to compare it to elephants, mm-hmm. right? Uh, if an elephant comes into a village and kills somebody or destroys a crop or is considered a repeat offender, it's marked as a problem animal and they say it's, it's got to go. And the only way to do that is to shoot it. Mm -hmm. Um, so rather than them just do it themselves, they'll fly a hunter in and make him pay whatever it is, 20,000, $50,000. And then the village gets the meat. So that's a win-win. So vice versa, if there was a rattlesnake that had bit somebody's dog but they knew that there was somebody who wanted to pay $10,000 for that skin rather than just hack its head off and throw it in the ditch. They'd say, okay, well, why don't you come in and you can take this and everybody wins. Uh, That's good. I'm glad you went there because elephants, giraffes, those are probably ones, even me personally, when I see pictures, I'm like, hmm, I don't know how sporting that is. And I've never been there, but hearing the fact that there's big price tag on that and it really helps the village. Yeah. Yeah. Giraffes, I don't really understand that. They're very slow and (laughs) not difficult to hunt. I have not hunted one myself, but just I've been around plenty of it. And um, that's a meat thing in most cases. Um, Elephants, different story uh, because you have to get very close. It's very, very dangerous. A lot of people get hurt or killed from that. Uh, I have filmed a number of elephant hunts, did not enjoy seeing any of them die. It was actually a very unpleasant experience until, and I'm not joking, we were in the middle of nowhere on the border of Tanzania and Mozambique, miles and miles from any village or anything. The hunter shot this elephant, and it wasn't 10 minutes after the gunshots rang out that a 100 people came out of the woods shouting and clapping and cheering, sharpening their knives, building a fire, and having a party. Because now they're having a feast. Mm-hmm. And they literally, they came up and they asked in Swahili, hey, you know, what do you want to keep? And the hunter's like, well, I'd, I'd like to keep this and this, and I'd like to keep some of the hide to make belts and boots for my family or whatever. And and then the village gets the rest. And they, they somehow brought in a flatbed truck, a giant lorry, and over the course of several hours, butchered an elephant and started to load meat on the cooler, or not the cooler, the truck. And that will feed that village for months. And so seeing that full circle moment made it acceptable. It still wasn't something that, it, it still, it, it made it made the taste less sour, yeah. basically. And, uh, and that's ultimately a question that, we as Westerners have to ask ourselves and something that we talked about in a lot in the Africa issue is we have to check our Western, if you want to call it Western privilege, whatever you want to say, like mm-hmm. a lot of Africans are tired of Western countries telling them what to do with their wildlife resources just because we think, oh, well, you shouldn't be able to do, you shouldn't be able to kill and eat elephant. Right. Okay. Well, what if we turn the tables and now, African countries were coming over to the United States and saying, okay, you know what? Not only do we not think you should be able to hunt and eat venison and deer, but we're actually going to use our uh, influence and money to have organizations 
like pass legislation to prevent you from doing that, which is what's happening over there. Okay. So there are Western countries who are through money and influence swaying government votes in certain countries to pass legislation against hunting in Africa, which is crazy. And we talk about that that issue. So that's a book. Eight? Eight. Yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll get to that. But all right, we're, we're making some progress. Yeah. So in Africa, mm-hmm. we have concrete, real-life examples that's undisputed that hunting is leading to population success, wild herds still being in existence. So we have conservation and preservation directly tied to hunting. Yeah, and in some cases, we, we have a story uh, in Mozambique. We went with the Cabello Family Foundation, um, like growth by thousands of percent in populations of certain game species so yeah yep. massive growth uh so through, if you dig into the details and the data yeah it, it proves that yeah okay. and of course there's some places where they don't let's say they don't follow the standard of ethics that is generally agreed upon to be sustainable efforts right. where maybe they're shooting too much or they're, you know, getting a little greedy. And, and so there, of course there's always bad examples, but yep. if it's done correctly, it's, uh, making things better. Yeah. And I think that's, if we, as a whole, it's, it's not most hunters. It's a few outliers. Sure. Right. That I mean, I was raised where I don't know if I was a conservationist or not, conservationist or not called myself that maybe because mm-hmm. i went to a ducks unlimited banquet and sure. paid texas trophy hunters right but it was there were shooting times mm-hmm. like you know you, you 30 minutes before sun up sundown for dove hunting or and duck hunting and there was bag limits and possession limits and you had to have your hunting license and duck stamp and i mean, know where i'm going with this but i think there was like a code sure that you should follow yeah and when we have people that aren't following that it makes us all look bad and that's the exact reason why we chose the word huntsman instead of hunter because Mm -hmm. a lot of people associate that word with what they've seen or what they were shown Mm -hmm. in a negative way and so we wanted to have a different word that represented you know a different path kind of thing yeah and in my research i was thinking there's a difference in a hunter and a killer sure and and i think a hunter is ethical and is thinking big picture and if I'm going to take the life of something, is it sustainable to where future generations are going to have the same opportunity versus just killing to kill? Sure. Yeah. And, yeah. And there, but you know, again, it's all nuanced and there are habitat management operations and culling operations that are necessary for conservation that isn't hunting, but mm-hmm. it's not negative right it's positive so there's a it's very it's hard to be broad too i mean are we talking deer on a high fence ranch where you control everything right are we talking free range game like you know elk and right mule deer Mm -hmm. are we talking migratory birds sure and it seems like yeah if we take ducks for example i mean here in north america to really do conservation, it seems you have to have the Canadians and the Americans and mm-hmm. people from Mexico and South America. I don't know how far teal go. I think they go pretty far down there. Mm-hmm. All working together. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah you got to. It's got to be collaborative there. Got it. So, so in America, maybe not the exact same example as what's happening in Africa. We there are animals, big deer that get sold, and there's elk hunts, and and I know that there there's value on them. But I guess a lot of the money is, would you say, going to creating 
jobs and habitat restoration that's going to allow us to continue to hunt? Or, or how would you put that into words with what's happening in America? Sure. It's a totally different system. And it's there's a difference between right the public and the private hunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, the public land hunting, a big part of that is, you know, the the licenses and um, the gear and, and all of that is going back into the pool <clears throat> to be managed by. They're also gaining a lot of data from hunters being out in these public spaces. The private hunting is different. It's not as closely regulated. Well, I don't want to say not as closely regulated. Obviously, they still have to have tags and a system like that unless it's a high fence situation and they own those wildlife. But if it's you know, in, in terms of North American conservation model, any wild animal is public property, right? And so if a if you live in an unfenced system and elk come onto your land, those are not your elk. Those are every citizen of the United States elk. Right. Um, and so it becomes, I don't want to say a gray area, but it becomes a more individual conservation effort of the landowner what is there, how dedicated of a conservationist and land manager are there, are they ideally they're partnering with their neighbors and other things to create wildlife corridors where these populations can move unchecked and undisturbed. Um, but it's not always like that, right? I mean, there are sometimes stories in Montana where elk herd will move on to a ranch uh, and it's a massive ranch and they want their clients to have success. So when the elk try to cross a border they'll go try to prevent them from doing that whether they're using snowmobiles or atvs and that's Mm -hmm. just an unfortunate reality that not everybody follows that code so um, ultimately it comes down to personal like personal ethics and and responsibility and and you know the hope is that more and more people subscribe to the fair chase principle and um trying to leave places better than they found them yeah what are you seeing these days? I'd be curious because you're around a lot of outdoor personalities and creative types and or hunters. I think there's different stages of hunting. Uh, I've heard it documented that when you start hunting, sometimes people are in the, the I got to get a limit and it's all about the kill. And, and then it slowly maybe turns more into the experience and the memory and the tradition. That's the stage I've entered into. Like, I don't really care if I kill anything. Mm-hmm. I just want to get away from some concrete, sure. see some stars maybe have a cold beer or bourbon around the fire yeah tell some jokes and create memories have mm-hmm. my son with me right but am i isolated in that view or are you seeing it you know collectively no. a, a movement like that i think that will always be a part of it i would say that we have seen a lot more especially during covid when i think some people had a rude awakening when they went to the grocery store and there was no meat and they had the realization that they didn't know how to provide for themselves. So I think a lot of people became interested in food sourcing uh, and also with, you know, whatever you want to call it, this sort of movement of self-improvement and, um, and evolution as an individual and a human being. I think a lot of people want to challenge themselves. And so there's, there's a lot of, what we would you would call maybe emergent or late onset adult onset hunters who have 
come to a place in their life where they maybe where they want to know where their food comes from or they uh, just want to challenge themselves or become better. And so there's a lot of people we've found, whether that's men or women, who are wanting to get into it. They don't necessarily know where to start and have not approached hunting from the traditional way where their grandfather or their father or their mother taught them anything about it. They're literally entering it, entering it as students, trying to find resources and are taking a very practical approach in the same way that you would train for a marathon or, uh, you know, prepare for whatever it is, uh, an overland trip. They're doing research and you know, thinking that from a very technical perspective, but also having a goal of wanting to take home food. And so, you know, there's, but there's, of course, that can go too far where if you're just, if you don't go home with meat, is that a failure? And I I think that, so trying to find a middle ground of still realizing that that experience is what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. It's something that you're never going to forget and ideally creating memories. But at the same time, we've seen a lot of that in the last couple of years. Yeah, and I'll. There is sometimes something to the kill as well. Sure. I mean, if if my son had been unsuccessful, it would have been a a memory, mm-hmm. but not near the memory we have now. Sure. And it was part of the process, and he felt a connection to me and to his grandpa, and he accomplished something that mm-hmm. it made him feel like he belonged. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's a rite of passage, call it what you want, but it was significant to him mm-hmm. for a kid that doesn't have a lot of wins. Sure. So yeah. they're. Yeah, it's, it's a tough conversation yeah. because there is, it doesn't have to be a big mount on the wall, mm-hmm. but there is some, I don't know, what do you call it? Uh, something to making the kill. Yeah. Well, it becomes, uh, it becomes part of your story mm-hmm. and, and a good friend of ours named Lindsay Davis, who, uh, she's a relatively in the last few years has kind of got into hunting later in life. And she was on one of our podcasts recently and was, and was just talking about, she, uh, had a successful solo elk hunt in, um, was it in Utah? It was either in Utah or New Mexico. I forget where it was, but long story short, she three days in was like, ah, I don't want to do this. She's like, I'll give it one more day. And then in day five, I'll give it one more day. Day six, I'll give it one more day. And literally on the last morning was able to make it all happen, was able to, you know, kill this elk, take it out herself and, has it in her kitchen and she was talking about how every time it's not about the trophy it's not about these massive horns and or whatever it's about the fact that when you see that that is a symbol and a representation of that moment in your life that took everything she had physically mentally emotionally i mean she laid it all out there and was dealing with you know knee pain and had to have reconstructive surgery and all kinds of stuff so those points of reference and obviously the word trophy hunting's become sort of negative but i mean the word trophy means memento mm-hmm. right and, and maybe we should come up with a different word for it so that people can stop using that as a, a you know slanderous term but i think that that's ultimately something you can point back to i mean you know, you've seen i didn't hunt that one but the some of these in here yeah represent I tell you exactly where we were and who I was with and what we were doing and right. how many times I got bit by a tsetse fly that day. And, <laughs> um, and those are same, same for your son. He's going to be able to feel that and remember it. Right. If we get, when we get that deer back from the taxidermist, I, yeah. I think they're backed up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tell me about a picture you took 
in a Stetson hat with some quail. Oh. That kind of started, it was, I mean, maybe at the beginning of this journey uh-huh. with Modern Huntsman. Yeah. Uh, so I was actually with Phil Lamb. In fact, he's the one who's holding yeah. the hat in that photo. I was in uh, out in West Texas, and we had gone on a hunt uh, with a couple of friends, and they both had their sons there. And I sort of went, you know, last minute invitation, and um, I, you know, I. It's kind of ironic that I run a hunting media company and don't get to hunt that often because mm-hmm. I'm always editing stories about other people hunting. But in that case, I got to go, um, and we were with Justin Forton, who's. Um, him and his wife founded Pecan Lodge. So obviously like famous Texas barbecue royalty. And so the whole idea was, hey, we're going to, yeah, we're going to go quail hunt. They're going to teach their sons a little bit about um, life in the field. And they were too young to hunt themselves, but we were have we basically using them as bird dogs. Hey, go get the birds. Yeah. And then we were going to cook these birds over the fire. And uh, it was just one of those moments where the boys had come back with these quail and they nobody was wearing a bird vest. So Phil was like, hey, just put them in my hat. So they, they put them in the hat as a way to like carry them back to where we were going. Mm-hmm. And it was just, as a Texan, you would understand it's a very yeah. Texan moment. Absolutely. We're wild West Texas quail in a Stetson out there and amongst the, you know, mesquite and thorns and all that kind of stuff. And um, I thought... It, it was kind of the first taste of uh, people's often violently emotional reactions to that sort of thing. Did you put it on Instagram yeah, or yeah, Facebook posted, or something? I posted yeah. it on Instagram. And there was, uh, I, I totally forgot about this. There was a pretty heated, uh, la- um, whatever you want to call it, backlash mm-hmm. from several people about that photo. And you know, I did my best to keep my cool and sort of explain, Hey, this is, I'm sorry that you don't like this, but it doesn't make it wrong kind of thing. And I think that, um, fortunately over time, as we've kept our cool and sort of, I don't want to say intellectually dismantled a lot of people's arguments, but basically, uh, not engaging on an emotional level. Um, and, and it's not necessarily about being, uh, you know, unapologetic, but at the same time, people having emotional reactions to something they don't understand and, and trying to point that out. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know if that answers your question, no, but, but it probably had to be eye opening if someone could react that way to a couple birds in a hat Yeah, Vers- and- versus, I mean, if it was a, I don't know, mountain lion. Right, or right. Something. Yeah. And, and I think that it was, I think it was during the process of us finishing the first issue. And I had tried to warn some of my, you know, former partners and, and employees, hey, this, this is going to get intense. Mm-hmm. There's some people who literally will threaten your family and your kids' lives because they think what you're doing is is wrong. And I don't think they really understood what i was saying until that sort of stuff started to happen and they got a little taste of uh how cutthroat and just brutal people can be uh for something that they may not even know anything about they may have just been told by their friend or they went to a you know a dinner a banquet that was against furs or whatever it was uh and so but honestly since then right we've published stories on elephant hunting whale hunting polar bear hunting grizzly bear you know buffalo name one 
and we've done it. And every single time, uh, in the beginning, we were like, ooh, we knew this was a roll of the dice. But honestly, there hasn't been. Yeah, there's people who just make dumb comments and right. they don't it's it's very clear from the way somebody responds that they're just you know having an emotional reaction to something they obviously don't know anything about but if some if, if someone truly calls us out we enter into an engagement with them uh and and so i think the difference is that we have made it a point to never really act like we're the experts because because we're not sure there's some very talented people that, that are part of this. And, you know, Byron's an incredibly well-read, incredibly intelligent person, but he also has a lot of conversations with experts, global experts who scientists and researchers and things like that. So we are trying to be presenters of a wider range of perspectives that hopefully bring about a constructive conversation. And so uh, by, by sort of, I don't want to say removing ourselves, but saying, Hey, this is a reality of, and this is what, the issue is this is what this side says and this is what this side says we're interested in a constructive solution and and so a lot of times we're asking people to draw their own conclusions but i think in that way we've managed to throw some hot potatoes out on the table and mm -hmm. not necessarily be uh you know pinned to the wall for it uh but you know we'll see well it seems like y'all are pragmatic or uh, you're approaching it from using logic yeah data instead yeah. of emotion but Unfortunately, sometimes it seems like tolerance is a one-way road, not two ways. Yeah, and that's um, we've learned to just let let that people people can tell people people know people are for the most part fairly perceptive, uh, and and the ones who aren't and who buy into the uh, maybe emotional bias that's not who we're trying to talk to. Yeah. So, fellow grit man, I hope you're enjoying this conversation with me and Tyler. Real quick, I want to tell you about our brand partner, Poncho Outdoors, which, in my opinion, is hands down the best outdoor shirt on the market. I've tried them all. Poncho's my favorite. The original, the western, you're going to like them both. I have like 12 of them. It's my go-to shirt for going to the ranch or fishing or even casual client meetings. They're tough and classy, just like Grit Man. Use code GRIT at checkout. The owner, Clay, has thrown that in for us, G-R-I-T. For a free hat or t-shirt, be sure to add the hat or t-shirt to your cart prior to checking out for the code to work. If you have any trouble, let me know. Now, back to our interview with Tyler. We're about to dig into his unique grit story. Enjoy. Thank you. Okay, let's, let's dig into Modern Huntsman. <laughs> okay. And uh, I'm going to... How I was introduced to you, uh, I had a friend of mine that sent me book six, which mm. I will tell you at the time I didn't know anything about mm. what you were doing. I wasn't big on social media. And I get this book that's beautiful. If uh, it was worthy of being on our coffee table, it says a lot. Cause my <laughs> wife has a lot of those books that yeah. don't get read. They have a big R on oh, them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, you know, the designer makes you just put them out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. This one had a great cover, and I was interested in a letter from Tyler Sharp, editor-in-chief. Mm. And so I'm reading this. I'm going to read a few segments of it, but it said, Look like you just lost your job. And what job was that? Is it a 15-year career? Yeah, so I, in 15 years, I've only had one 
actual like salaried job okay. and it was did it have benefits your mom it did <laughs> it did have benefits which is just a huge deal right i was like okay maybe i'll you know maybe i'll go do this um i was a commercial director for a, a studio here in dallas and um you know i was directing commercials and doing brand work and, and some things like that. And so it was, you know, it, it only lasted about six months. And a big part of that negotiation was that, hey, I still want to be able to go travel and do these things. And part of the deal was I was supposed to be bringing some of these freelance clients into this and we would be able to do bigger projects, um, but it didn't work out. Okay. So. So didn't work out and here we go. So, so I picked up my shattered pride and the next day went to Elk River Books in Livingston, Montana and wrote the script for our Modern Huntsman launch film. It was then or never, because what better time to start a print publication and an against-the-current media company than when you're broke, on your ass, and being bet against? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much where, where you were? Yeah. I literally, it was funny because I, I had taken that job in January, and every year I would go to Montana in August for like a month and shoot photos and fly fish and camp and just enjoy it. And so part of my contract was I had negotiated, hey, look, there's there's a couple of trips this year. It, it, I don't have to get paid for the time off, but I need to go. This is a non-negotiable for me. And mm -hmm. they agreed to it. And my boss waited till I left town until I was in Montana and then basically called. And he was like, hey, um, you should probably call up some of your old clients because you know this isn't working out kind of thing and i didn't get fired but basically he like yeah. kind of took a spineless approach to letting me leave town so he didn't have to tell me in person and knew that i wasn't going to come back for another four weeks yeah. and he wasn't going to have to deal with it so i was basically you know let go while i was on vacation with no work lined up for a month uh, and it was, it was just a really bad situation. And, uh, so yeah, it was just one of those things where, all right, well, I, it's, it's now or never kind of thing. And, you know, a lot of people at the time were naysayers and saying, Hey, you're an idiot for trying to launch a print publication. And it was never just about being a print publication, but you know, yeah. when you're trying to do something, I don't know if progressive is the right word, but just something Different. that no one else has done before yeah. people have a hard time seeing the same thing and I've, I've come to learn that and so yeah there was a lot of people including a lot of friends and family who were like well you're doing what that doesn't how are you right, gonna make right, money right, stop there because we're about to get into this okay all right okay. this is uh this is where i'm like i don't know this dude but he may be a grit man all right you go on to say i've sacrificed so much to keep this going and have received a lot of personal criticism along the way i've been called a hipster a poser and told that i'm not hardcore enough because I don't fit the mold of what some closed-minded individuals think a hunter should be. I've lost friends, family members, my freelance career, even the love of my life. I've stood for contributors, tried to do things, tried to do the right thing, and been thrown under the bus anyway. Yeah. It's a lot there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, to try to you know, man in the arena sort of thing, which I'm sure you're familiar with that yeah. speech and, um, you know, in, in relevance to grit men and all that, it just, uh, business is hard in general, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, especially a startup, especially in a, an arena like print publishing, but then also in the hunting industry, there's so much, uh, just divisiveness and for lack of a better term, tribalism and mm -hmm. stupid pettiness. Like, Oh, well 
I'm a compound bow guy. Oh, well, I'm a traditional bow, and so we can't be friends. Or I wear only solid colors, and no, 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 hunting, you can only hunt with camo. It's just, there's, there's, it just seems so counterproductive with the amount of disagreement and and sectionalism, and, and it's very clicky. And, you know, I think, to the hunting industry's credit, a lot of that mentality was created. I think the hunting industry was caught off guard with the anti-hunting lashback from some of the TV shows of the 90s and things mm-hmm. like that, when all of a sudden there's all this media out there that got turned against them. And so they got on the defense and now their guard was up. And if you weren't dressed like they were, or you weren't wear a ring wearing member of the club or whatever it is, you're... A, a outsider and a potential threat kind mm-hmm. of thing. And so I I don't come from a traditional hunting background uh, and my hunting experience is backwards, right? I shot an African kudu before I ever shot a white-tailed deer, yep. right? Um, very, I shot very unusual for a guy from Texas. A warthog yep. in Zambia before I ever shot a Texas hog, you know, and so I, I, I kind of have this different background, but obviously coming from, I'm just not, I don't fit like it said in the thing, it is sort of a traditional mold of, of what a lot of the people in these, these hunting organization industries look like. And, you know, my grandfather was a very classy gentleman and, and he taught me a lot of things, but some of that was style. And, wearing nice boots and a nice belt and wearing a Stetson and being well-dressed and well-mannered and well-spoken. And is that the hipster? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's where that came from is cause I'm usually, I mean, I'm not today. So you care about fashion? Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say style more than fashion. Style, okay. Yeah. And I think that what was, what was grandpa's name? Uh, his name was Condal Lowry, but he went by Big C. Big C. Big C. So he was the district clerk of Montague County, which is up North by the red river. And, okay. uh, literally his nickname was mr monte county he was just like he was the man and uh you know just a word is bond straight shooter um just a classy guy and Mm -hmm. i think that uh, you know you (laughs) now i'm taking shots but you know you go to a lot of these hunting shows and it's different if it's an international show right people wear tweeds and they dress kind of nice but you go to like a local show and it's like people wearing t-shirts and flat build caps and walking around you know it's like i'm tough you couldn't go to a high school dance dress like that i mean what have like so i think that coming into this when i say this our mission with a slightly elevated sense of photography writing sophistication trying to elevate the storytelling to a level um where we honestly i would consider ourselves at the level of national geographic we have quite a few contributors who are from national geographic but at the same time it's difficult to balance that between being you know articulate and elevated and sophisticated with being associated as like unapproachable or snobby or too highbrow or something like that which is of course something people have said but at the same time you know so it's a balance there and i just um we've also said things that people don't want to hear and we've sort of gone against the grain in, in some aspects and uh not everybody likes that because a lot of people have gotten rich and successful off of the same old thing. And um, as we've started to 
sort of look into the shadows and turn over rocks. Um, you know, there's some things we've pointed out that have created some opposition and, and have, you know, created us to be labeled as, you know, and, and we intentionally positioned ourselves on the outskirts of the hunting industry because to accomplish our goal, which is to effectively bridge gaps between hunters and non hunters, we can't be perceived as being in the belly of the beast. We, we have to be able to be diplomatic in that sense. And so anyways, well, I mean, when you, when you have something that you're doing well, I think sometimes criticism's going to find you. Sure. It's, it's just natural. Yeah. I mean, and, and um, as I'm starting this grit man club, I mean, that's, Hey, be ready to take a few arrows and people say oh, yeah. things that maybe aren't true, Yeah, but it's just part of life. And I took it personally a lot more in the beginning than I did now. Um, but at, at the end of the day, you know, I think that the only thing that's not the only thing, but I've had to remind myself of why, I mean, I've, as I said, there made a lot of sacrifices and thankfully have, you know, continued to be able to move things forward, whether it's, uh, resilience and dedication or stubbornness and stupidity. I, I don't know. Fine line uh, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that ultimately you just have to trust in, you know, trust in your vision and trust in the people around you that what we're doing is important and meaningful because if you don't care about, if you don't believe that, then, there's no reason to keep doing it. So, right. so you, you finish with this, and it says huge opportunities have fallen through. Brands have backed out of deals. Promises have been broken, and some folks with shallow vendettas have tried their hardest to sabotage the reputation of our brand and my name. I'm also pretty sure most of my family hasn't read a single word that I've written in these pages. <laughs> yeah. To be clear, I'm not writing this to complain or to make you feel sorry for me, but because I recognize these challenges as lessons. These trials have forced me to overcome, to press on, and to be resilient. This thing is worth fighting for, and I'm a fighter. I will always get back on the horse. I love that. That's Thanks. great. <laughs> well, it's funny because when I wrote that letter, I know it's it's very personal. Yep. And at the time, you know that. So that was that was towards the end of 2020, and we had had just like everybody some hard times, but also some you know some obstacles that threatened the survival of the company. Right. And there were some people in our inner circle who were concerned that if I shared this information, that people would, you know, not want to. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. That, oh, this they're guy's a little unhinged. Yeah, exactly. Or they're unstable or they're yeah. not, that's not a safe bet. Or like, is this really worth, you know, us partnering with them? And so there, you know, there was some, some risk associated with, with writing something like that. But ultimately, if, because that's, that's, that's me, that's who I am you know, we like to say we're like national geographic, but we spent a couple nights in jail in Mexico. We've got a little more dirt under our fingernails. And so yeah. if we can't be ourselves and yeah. I think ultimately the success of what we're trying to do is going to be based on who we are as people, in addition to, you know, the stories we tell and, and the brand we've built. But if that, and I, and I had the people I trust the most read that and mm-hmm. say, Hey, is this yeah. too much? And they're like, no, this is, this is you. And at the, at the end of the day, uh, I would rather have fewer supporters and brand partners who believe in me as a person and Byron and, and some of our team, uh, than be, you know, mass appeal and be making my decisions based on like, Oh, is this going to be popular or not? I mean, I, at, at a certain point, 
maybe that's not worth it. Um, and so, yeah, it was a risk, but, uh, and honestly, it's funny because I write those letters and I don't really know who reads them. I don't often get feedback on it, but I've had, um, a couple of people in, in the last month or two reference some of these letters I've written. I was like, Oh, okay. I guess I and loved it, it. in fact, she referenced <laughs> that one in yeah. general. And honestly, that led to us closing a deal and, and partnering because they said, no, we appreciate you being personal and sharing some of this struggle. Mm-hmm. And especially during COVID when a lot of people were going through this internally, um, I, had a lot of people reach out privately and just say, Hey, like I, I didn't want to share my struggle mm-hmm. publicly, but I've been going through similar things and, and I appreciate it. And, and it helped me work through my own stuff. And so, yeah, I think that, uh, ultimately I'm glad I did it. And so far it hasn't come back to bite me too bad. So I loved it. It was authentic. You were basically saying, this is who I am. Yeah. I believe in this mission like me or not. Yeah. I want quality partners over quantity. Sure. And, uh, yeah, it's funny because I'm sure if you had a, I don't even know what you would call it, marketing company or mm-hmm. some advertisement. They would probably have said, "Woo, don't do that." Oh yeah, no, but they you would followed have, your gut. Yeah, the uh, the risk assessment team would have probably shut that down and yeah. <laughs> turned it into a a rosy outlook. But uh, that's not. Yeah, we don't well, have one of those. I've I don't know how many people think like me. There's a few out there, but that made me keep going. Mm-hmm. When I read your letter, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to see what else this guy has to talk about. This is a pretty good start. So, cool. Let's move forward. Yeah. So Modern Husband, it's, it tells a little more because sure. uh, two books a year, but two books, tell the audience about two it. Two books a year. And, you know, when we say book, it's, you know, 200 plus page publication. It's not a magazine really in the traditional sense. We don't have ads. Uh, we partner with brands and then we work with those brands to produce stories that are embedded as part of the narrative of the whole issue. But then we also do podcasts that are typically, you know, wide ranging in conversation. I mean, we've touched on a lot of these topics in this talk. What's the name of the podcast? It's called Into the Wilderness. Yeah. And Byron Pace, my business partner, runs it. But, you know, that's something that we um, weave into the stories that are in the book and online and and with our brand partners as a way to sort of have a deeper dive into topics. Uh, We produce films. Uh, we do a lot of online stories. We do, you know, f- chef features and highlights of food and recipes and things. Um, we're going to be doing a lot more events. Now that I'm back in Texas, we're going to be doing stuff in store with Tukovas and, and Duck Camp and um, Texas Parks and Wildlife, Stewards of the Wild organization, things like that. Um, but ultimately, you know, we're a group of a, a relatively small group team of creatives, writers, thinkers, filmmakers, uh, and we're independently supported, right? We are self-published. Um, we don't have any corporate overlords. We've bootstrapped this and grown it ourselves. And so, uh, in terms of the shameless plug, right? If uh, we say like, if there's anything that I've said or anybody else has said that's resonated, um, and people are like, Oh, we'd love to help, or, you know, we'd love to be a part of this in some way. I mean, honestly, the most important thing is to just support right and subscribe or order an issue or if, if you're not into it find a relative that you think uh they might be into it you know a lot of mm-hmm. um it's funny because i get <clears throat> i get a message every at least every issue from you know my my mother is a um 
community manager for assisted living home. Okay. And there's a lot of elderly folks that she's introduced to it who used to hunt back in the day and they love it. And they're like, we love this so much, but can you make the print type size a little bigger? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, and we've actually done that. It's actually, we've actually increased it a little bit, but it's still, it's still pretty small. So, um, yeah. And, and obviously we do, there's other, we host panel discussions and, and things like that. But uh, but at the end of the day, you know, we're we're hoping to be able to to grow the subscriber base to a point where it'd be great to not need to partner with brands. I mean, there's a lot of brands that we will continue to partner with forever because they just fit. Uh, mm-hmm. They're just such great partners on these kinds of things. But um, but ultimately, yeah, that's how we fund everything is through support from independent subscribers. Okay, great. So the Gritman Show and the Gritman Club, we want to support you. So how do we subscribe? Where, where do we go? Uh, yeah, just modernhuntsman.com. You'll see a subscribe button or forward slash subscribe. Um, and depending on when this releases, you know, we're currently it's just you're either subscribe or not. But pretty soon right. we're going to be rolling out several levels of subscription. Um, obviously the premium level involves the book, but if you're, you know, someone who travels a lot or you're not into paper, uh, we will have a digital version of that where you can access the archive or a PDF or an iPad and all that kind of thing. Um, and then actually what we're going to end up doing is sort of having a, uh, a channel to support individual writers. So if there's one of our writers that you just resonate with and really want to support, we're going to have a way for people to do that, um, because the ultimate dream would be to have enough people supporting the effort that you know some of our team or our, our uh, contributors could quit their day jobs as teachers or you know editors or whatever it is and just focus on that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And I would I would love to make that happen for some of them because they're all uh, deserving and and talented people who would love to create more of those types of stories. Two books a year. What time of year do they come out? Typically, spring, you know, May is typically, you know, April, May. And then the second one, usually we try to aim for September, October, right around hunting season. Um, We're trying to get on a schedule where we're not working on a book during hunting season. Uh, We'll we'll be able to pull that off. But, you know, with um, supply chain and paper shortages and all kinds of stuff, it's sometimes it's out of our hand. But, yeah, typically spring and and fall. And if, can you go to... Barnes and Noble and get it or not? No. So okay. right now it's almost exclusively through our website. You know, we do our own fulfillment and printing and all of that. Um, it, there are some in retail stores. Some, it's mostly some smaller, you know, fly shops and things like that. I think we have a list of those on the site. Um, I mean, that's one thing. If, if, if anybody knows of a local store, you think they should have that and let us know, drop us a line. And, you know, we're working on, on getting that part of the website set up where retailers can just order it for themselves um but yeah right now it's it's almost all through our own website okay perfect and do you ever get someone ask you like two books a year i mean what do you what do you do in your spare time <laughs> <laughs> what do i do in my well, spare I'm time not even saying, like, i mean i've just the the work that goes in this podcast yeah I, I would i would never ask you that yeah but if uh i mean there's a lot of lead time and a lot of sourcing and a lot of thought and preparation mm-hmm. and editing. I know, but, uh, I guess maybe never, no one's ever said that. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, uh, it doesn't feel like I have a lot of free time. Um, and that wasn't a criticism. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, 
It's a good, it's a good question. Um, <laughs> 2020 was the first year in 15 years that I didn't go to Africa. Mm-hmm. So typically I, I'm on the move quite a bit, uh, traveling and, and we try to be strategic with getting ahead of stories and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do, I do some speaking events and I do, um, I mean, I'm going to be going out to, uh, we print our book in Los Angeles and I'm going to be visiting a friend who's a faculty director at art center in Pasadena which is an unusual uh, venue, but essentially he's been showing his students, these art students, our book Mm -hmm. as an illustration of an independent publisher and and as a way to show how people can take different paths in career. So I'm going to hopefully be doing some portfolio reviews there and and some stuff like that. Um, But... I mean, I'm, I'm always, you know, I'm also the marketing division, so I'm right. hitting the campaign trail. Lots of hats. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, in a non, uh, I, I love martial arts. I uh, was a Kung Fu instructor for 15 years and still like to play sports and run and jog and things like that. But it may be a little while before we're back on that train. So yeah, he, uh, Tyler had a little bit of an injury. <laughs> He's on a scooter. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, to, yeah. Tore tore my Achilles tendon. Uh, so, but maybe that was a universe forcing me to slow down a little bit. And there's a lot of development we're in the process of right now. So, you know, it, it's funny. I've had uh, uh, several people now say, "Oh, well, you're stuck at home. Great, you can get back to writing." Yeah, yeah. So, do you do you write much, or are you at this point just sourcing? I mean, I have four trunks in there full of notebooks of i mean i've i am a writer i have always been a writer typically i'm contributing multiple stories per issue with everything we've had going on in the last year i have been doing much less of that um trying to get back to a situation where i'm doing less administrative things and more creative things but it's just you know ebbs and flows kind of a situation and so part of the new website and the new um subscriber model is that our team will be writing more personal stuff not necessarily to the level of that editor's letter but more of just behind the scenes what we're doing what we're working on um sharing anecdotes travel i have so many images from all those years i was overseas that i've never shared and just telling a little bit of, you know, stories and funny things and dangerous situations. And so I'm hoping to do more of that. But, yeah. So book six that I got introduced to is titled Resilience. Does, mm-hmm. does every book have a, a title like that? Every one of them. So volume one did not. But two through six. I'm sorry, two through eight. Yes. Okay. But starting with our next book, volume nine. We're doing away with the theme. We will have recurring thematic sections of each book where almost consider it a column, right? And it's just, I love the idea of the theme, but it became limiting on a timeline where, okay, we've decided on a theme and now we've got to find relevant stories within a time frame versus being able to decide, okay, we're going to do a column around wild food let's come up with four awesome ideas and start to develop those. And now we're two years ahead of that section of the book. So yeah, just in terms of planning and, and strategizing, we're, we're trying to get a little bit more ahead of that. So 
Um, volume two was public land. Volume three was wildlife management. Volume four was a women's issue. Volume five was a traditions issue. Mm-hmm. Um, six was resilience. Seven, seven was water. And eight is Africa. And so, eight's about to come out. It's out. Oh, it it's came out, out okay. in January. Okay. Yeah. So. Uh, and and you can go back and buy previous books, right? Yes. Some of them are sold out. I think our women's issue is only available f- from our UK fulfillment center. So it's a little bit more just with shipping. But, and then I think we might be sold out of volume two. So we have a few back order, back issues that are out of stock. I have a few here that I've been hoarding that waiting for the right opportunity. Um, but, but yeah, for the most part, they're all available. Gotcha. So. So bring us into the modern day. We mm-hmm. were we were back a couple of years. What are the what are the challenges now? What are the opportunities? Sure, I think that challenges now are, you know, I think we've proved that we we can we we are consistently producing high quality stories and a publication. Um, we're getting approached by a lot of people to do a lot of different things scaling that and finding ways to do more of it uh, in at the same level of quality that we're doing is kind of what we're focused on now um, while at the same time not sacrificing what what we stand for and and you know <clears throat> there's there's situations where people approach us about partnering and it's not a good fit yeah. right and being being diplomatic about that how do, how do you have how do you say no how does that conversation work uh I mean, I don't know if this. I don't. <laughs> I don't know if this is a, a good problem to have. But honestly, because I'm handling all of the marketing and stuff right now, mm-hmm. I can't even respond to a lot of these inquiries. Yep. And I know that may sound bad. That some of them I just I can't even get to. Yep. Um, because if I do and I enter into a situation, we we start a conversation. Mm-hmm. I've got to create the media kit. I've got to put the package together. We got to have a follow up. I mean, that's probably three or four phone calls yep. to even get to the point where we're discussing. Okay, is this a good thing? And by that point, you know, there's all these other things. So we're working on, on trying to streamline that a little bit. So you're and saying congruence is a big deal with your brand partners. Oh, You've got to stand for the same things. Yes. Or you won't take them on. Yeah. 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 And then it's also, uh, even if it is a good fit, there has to be an element of, I don't want to say education, but essentially we partner with brands in a unique way. Not a lot of people do it the way we do. So there's there's kind of a... A process of explaining, hey, this is how it works, and uh, sometimes that takes several several rounds of conversation to get to a point where they see the value proposition there, um, and and they don't always do that, and that's fine. Um, but yeah, I think that we're at this stage where we've um, there's a lot of opportunities in front of us, front of us, and we're trying to figure out how we, which ones we prioritize and take on and how we do that in a way that doesn't spread us too thin and, uh, knock us off track for what we should be doing. Um, well, at the same time, I mean, it was with every business trying to, you know, grow in the right ways and, um, make things easier. And at the same time, hopefully have more of a normal life. Favorite bar. Ever or here? However you want to answer. Oh. In Dallas, okay. it's Lee Harvey's. Okay. It's a it's a bar in in uh, Cedars neighborhood of Dallas. Um, I used to live in an old loft that was Jack Ruby's old building. And so 
appropriately named Lee Harvey's. It's my friend's, literally it's his grandma's old house that they converted to a bar. Really? Super cool dive bar. Um, what about in Montana? In Montana, it would have to be the old saloon. It's an immigrant Montana in Paradise Valley. Uh, my dad and his friends drunkenly missed the boat pull out in 1979 or 1980, stumbled up the bank and found this bar. Uh, and we've been going for years and now my brother's actually, you know, one of the lead bartenders there. Um, and then globally, yeah, I would say this is super random, but there's, there's a, a little bar in Arusha, Tanzania called the, the lively lady. Okay. Uh, that's a, that's a great little spot, uh, that I've had some good times at. That's, that's definitely a memorable one. What's the tattoo on your left forearm so this one yeah um it's swahili it says imara kama simba which has several different translations but essentially it means strong like a lion brave like a lion and it was from one of my best friends in tanzania his father had passed away and i was going to climb kilimanjaro and he asked me to take some of the ashes with them to scatter at the top and so obviously that's like, okay, well, I got to make it to the top. Yeah. And let's just say I wasn't training. <laughs> I had basically been like partying with my friends for a week after the safari. Didn't know I was going to get to climb. Basically, they said, hey, if a spot opens up, we'll let you know. So I get a call the day after we had this late night. And they say, hey, we're leaving uh, tonight if you want to come on this Kilimanjaro safari. So I didn't, I didn't have like backpack or boots i was wearing like filson boots and i had a camera like over the shoulder bag and i had at the time i had a big beard and so the guides were calling me simba which in swahili means lion and that's lion king simba uh okay yeah yeah. uh and so we get to the point below the summit it's the last night you leave at midnight and you hike five hours six hours up and i got really sick just altitude sickness and i I couldn't see straight i was dehydrated i I didn't think i was going to make it and this young guide um basically took me by the arm and started singing a song Imara Kama Simba, Imara Kama Simba. And he like made this little song up and was clapping. And that's all, all I remember is staring at the headlamp, watching my feet shuffle as he basically pulled me up the last, whatever it is, 500 feet, thousand feet. And that song that he sang was the only reason that I made it up there. And I got up to the top of Kilimanjaro, which is whatever it is, 19,300 feet. And as I got up there, the sun came over the glacier and lit up and I snapped out of it and took some photos, um, scattered the ashes. You only, without oxygen, you can only be up there for like 15 or 20 minutes because your brain just, okay. you start to deteriorate. And so you don't have long up there. So I scattered the ashes and um, made it back down and made it back down to Moshi is the town at the base of Kilimanjaro and was sitting there like drinking a Kilimanjaro beer, looking up at the peak, like how the hell did I just do that? It was like an eight day expedition kind of thing. So anyways, that's just sort of a meaningful saying. It's, awesome. it's always been a reminder of, of uh, a difficult time. And um, I doubt Frank Kazito is listening to this podcast, but <laughs> if you are Frank yeah. in Moshi, thanks for the help. <laughs> so, Well, let's wrap this up with yep. this. So. What does it mean to you today to be a modern huntsman? Hmm. 
good question. Um, yeah, I think that part of the reason we chose that word, I, I mentioned it earlier, is that the word hunter had a lot of negative connotation. So we wanted to do something different. But it, it, I would say, and it's not just me as a person, but Byron and some of our other teammates are kind of a mix of old and new. Mm-hmm. And, and so the word huntsman came from a time when it meant more than just being a hunter. You, you were, a you know, you know, woodcraft probably, yeah, you did know how to hunt. You probably knew how to track. You probably knew about ecology, um, and habitat management and things like that. You know, you, you hear about the times of like, you know, poet warrior Kings kind of thing, just the idea of being multifaceted. Mm-hmm. Right. And we keep saying wearing many hats, but something like that, where, finding that interesting mix of keeping some traditions alive, honoring those things and finding them, finding ways to integrate that into a modern life, uh, that still, you know, is, is meaningful and isn't, you know, overrun by all of the stupid TikTok dance videos and that sort of thing. Um, but at the same time is, you know, trying to find a better way self-analyzation, you know, comprom- I don't know if compromise is the right word, but mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Trying to find ways to integrate um, the old and new. So I think that's ultimately what what we're trying to do. Um, and in a, in a practical sense, a lot of people I mean, ask the question, what does the future of hunting look like? How do we get the next generation involved? Or how do we get new people involved? And the answer is there's gotta be more points of access and a, um, I don't know, more relatability, right? Mm-hmm. And in a way uh, that's a little slightly more welcoming uh, and inclusive than, let's say, some of the some of the more traditional routes um, where people might feel intimidated or, or not part of the club. And I'm I'm one of those. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of why we did this. So um, I think that answers the question. No, I love it. That's in, in the Grit Men show and the, the Grit Men movement. Like we sometimes it's hard to ar- articulate, but it's. You know what is masculinity today and i don't think it's the guy in the gym just doing curls and grunting or the jacked up truck with the loud exhaust <laughs> i mean it's something different yeah uh but it's uh no i i applaud you i like what you're doing and rooting for you and just appreciate you willing to have this complicated discussion but it's <laughs> it's when my son asked me that question sure it wasn't an easy answer yeah and thank you for unpacking it with me sure absolutely my pleasure and it's it's uh it's important to you know discuss those details and in in a forum like this is a great opportunity to do it the comment section of an instagram post isn't the best place to have a a complex discussion and i know that you know in, in your son's case you were hoping for a simple answer but you know, maybe this is something that uh, he can listen to and, and have a deeper understanding of how to answer that question, but also things to think about for himself, you know, and, and the way he wants to approach things and um, and develop his own voice. So, Well, he was pumped. I dropped him off at school before I drove up here and I said, hey, I'm going to talk to this guy and the episode's going to be about you. And he goes, as he, before he shut the door, all right, good luck, daddy. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Oh. Thanks, Tyler. We yeah. appreciate it. Thanks so much. We'll okay. talk soon. He plays like nails. He plays like nails. He's tough as nails. He likes to call himself a grit man, whatever that means. Quit with my daddy. Yes, I didn't make the time. And it's been a year since I've seen a deer at a small mouth on the line. The other day I hooked a monster. And as I reeled him in, 
Man, it feels good to be country again. Mm -hmm. 